0: welcome to Mina's motivation podcast thank you for clicking play yeah seriously you for clicking play i appreciate it um so this is a podcast that is going to give you my experience as a black female in america and just my christian revelations as i continue on this wonderful walk of faith sit back relax and continue to listen Hi, you guys. So I'm going to be talking about mental health in the Black community. I'm very excited. Um, Self-disclosure, I have experienced and I'm working through high-functioning generalized anxiety. I've also experienced depression and different Parts of my life, so this stuff really interests me. And a question I often ask my mom is, "How did the slaves, or how did our ancestors, deal with anxiety and depression?" So this kind of gives us um, just more information related to this. So I am reading from BlackPast.org. Please check it out. They have a lot of wonderful history. This particular article was contributed contributed by Yuchina Ume. Um, the title of it is Mental Illness in Black Community, 1700s to 2019, a short history. All right. So first we have this image. So imagine a face that is looking to the left and it's just an outline of this face. Inside of this space, you have a circle. Inside of that circle, it says stressors on diverse ethnic slash racial groups. Outside of that circle that basically um, connects together to create that circle is racism, discrimination, violence, and poverty. These are mental health disparity factors, all right? Here is a quote. Members of ethnic and racial minority groups in the U.S., face a a social and economic environment of inequality that includes greater exposure to racism, discrimination, violence, and poverty, all of which take a toll on mental health. So let's get started on this article. Now, during this article, I will be giving my two cents because I like to just respond to articles and just grapple with them, right? In the article below, Dr. Euchina Ume, a former San Antonio, Texas physician, briefly describes how mental health among African Americans was viewed and treated by the American medical community from the antebellum period until today. In the process, she describes how those attitudes have impacted Black views of mental health into the contemporary era. So this sense of mental health is sometimes Taboo in black communities. All right, and the article is going to start now. In the article below, Dr. Euchina Ume, a former San Antonio, Texas physician, briefly describes how mental health among African Americans was viewed and treated by the American medical community from the antebellum period until today. In, this, in the process, she describes how those attitudes have impacted Black views of mental health in the contemporary era. In 1848, John Galt, a physician and medical director of the Eastern Lu- Lu- Lunatic Asylum in Williamsburg, Virginia, offered that Blacks are immune to mental illness. Galt hypothesized that enslaved Africans could not develop mental illness because, as enslaved people, they did not own property, engage in commerce, or participate in civil affairs, such as voting or holding the office. Let's pause there. How does Black and mental illness have to deal with property, engagement in commerce, and civil affairs? Anyway. This immunity hypothesis assumed, according to Gall and others at the time, that the risk of lunacy would be highest in populations who were emotionally exposed to the stress of profit-making, principally wealthy white men. If indeed this statement were true, then I, a woman of Nigerian ancestry living in the United States, as well as some of my family members, friends, and acquaintances, my patients, and their parents and grandparents, all Black, should never have struggles with mental health issues. Yet we all Unfortunately, we of African ancestry have subconsciously embraced and propagated this narrative much to our detriment, believing as if this problem does not exist in our race. In September of 2018, I quit my job as a physician to focus on public speaking with the sole purpose of increasing awareness about mental health illness among people of African ancestry in the United States. I have become aware of a substantial increase in depression and suicidal ideation in my patients. The more I researched this topic, the more I noticed the problem is increasingly prevalent in the contemporary community. Today, suicide rates in African-American children aged 5 to 11 have increased steadily since the 1980s and are now double those of their Caucasian counterparts. Black men made up 80% of attempted suicides among African-Americans in 2015. And in the US, black males are three times more likely to complete suicide than black women. These numbers are on a rise. Now that's an interesting fact to me because you know how um, some people will say, girls are so emotional and they connect those emotions to like problems. But here we have in 2015, it was mostly black men who attempted suicides. That's interesting to me. Mental illness has been in existence as long as humans have inhabited the earth. But for people of African descent, little or no references are available about this condition before the 1700s. Dr. Benjamin Rush, the leading medical authority in the nation during the years immediately following the American Revolution, was also the most prominent medical practitioner to disagree with John Galt's ideas about the absence of mental illness among black slaves when he wrote that many of the enslaved suffered from abnormal behaviors, including negritude, which he described, as the irrational desire by blacks to become white. Wow, take that in. Negritude is described as the irrational desire by blacks to become white. Now, let me tell y'all a story. When I was younger, I told my aunt, I was like, Aunt Brina, I want some white girl hair. She was like, what? What did you say? Why you want white girl hair? I don't really remember how that conversation ended, but she told my mama and I was like in some sort of trouble. She was just in awe. What did that have been ingrained from a long time ago? This idea of negritude. Again, it means described as the irrational desire by blacks to become white. Moving on. Since becoming white could only be accomplished by missing. Missignation? Rush argued against intermarriage between races to ensure that negritude would not spread beyond the black population. While there was no indication that he ever treated anyone for this disease, he noted in one of his writings that the Africans became, become insane soon after they enter upon the toils of perpetual slavery in the West Indies. Other antebellum medical researchers promoted conditions such as Drapatomania, a disease that caused enslaved blacks to flee their plantations, or Diastasia Ethiopia, a disease that purportedly, (laughs) these are big words, but I'm trying y'all, caused a state of dullness and lethargy, which would now be considered depression. So, when a person is enslaved, if they thought that they really wanted to flee, they had a condition? What? Anyway, modern historians of slavery have described both conditions as understandable responses to enslavement. But white medical practitioners at the time assumed they were manifestations of mental illness. So now you're mentally ill because you don't want to no longer be enslaved? Like, what? Anyway. Dr. Samuel Cartwright, a pro-slavery physician who worked with enslaved people in Louisiana, argued that severe whipping was, was the typically the best treatment for both conditions. Cartwright and others often reported that drapetomania and dysathesia, hold up, dysathysia Ethiopia were often accompanied by skin legions, which historians now argue were most likely from scars from the whippings. In other words, these physicians failed to recognize the connection between the emotional states of the slave of the enslaved and the treatment they recommended for their condition. So you mean to tell me people who would leave and people who continue to try to leave or experience depression at that time who were slaves, they would get beaten as a form of treatment for that mental state. Let's keep going most pre-civil war mental health facilities in the south usually barred the enslaved for treatment apparently mental health experts believe that housing blacks and whites in the same facilities would detrimentally affect the healing of the whites. housing conditions in the southern asylums for the few that accepted the enslaved Were bad enough for white patients, but the black patients were often housed outdoors near these institutions or in local jails. There were accounts of some child slaves being cared for in the yards of the asylums. Most of these facilities were run without government funding or oversight, and inmates, as the children were called, were regularly misdiagnosed and wrongly accused of crimes. Extending their stay in these institutions and exposing them to additional mistreatment by authorities. Now, this makes me think of kids in our education system, misdiagnosed, called a lot of black boys ADHD, wrongly accused of crimes, wrongly accused of crimes committed against teachers, even though given their level of development is probably consistent with their level of development. Let's continue. Many of these children were subjected to hard manual labor on farms owned by or near these institutions, foreshadowing the notorious convict leasing system that sprang up across the Reconstruction Era South. Often the labor of these children was praised by asylum authorities, further raising questions about the correctness of their diagnosis of mental illness, Here, we catch a glimpse of possible origin of contemporary Black distrust of the healthcare system. In essence, if these slaves were truly, quote unquote, out of their senses, how were they able to carry out sustained hard labor that required special skills while white patients were often, quote unquote, too feeble-minded to work? Let that sit if these slaves were truly out of their senses how were they able to carry out sustained hard labor that required special skills while white patients were often too feeble-minded to work? Now mind you it's black and white people that are patients in these asylums or in these mental institutions but often we don't see white people out here doing sustained hard labor Moving on. The Civil War nearly freed 4 million enslaved people across the South. It did not, however, lead to more enlightened attitudes about the treatment of African Americans with mental illness. In 1895, Dr. T.O. Powell, the superintendent of the Georgia Lunatic Asylum, observed an alarming increase in sanity and consumption, tuberculosis among blacks in his state, which he attributed to three decades of freedom. Powell argued that when the former slaves got their freedom, it caused them to have little or no control over their appetites and passions, and thus led to excesses and vices, which in turn generated a rise in insanity. Like experts before him, medical experts before him, Powell did not factor in socioeconomic conditions, including poverty, racial discrimination, and the ever-looming specter of violence lynchings reached a high point in the 1890 to 1920 period, as playing any role in the mental state of these freed people. At the beginning of the 20th century, African-Americans who were said to have mental deficiencies faced a new, more dangerous threat to their well-being, the eugenics movement. Starting in Great Britain, the movement quickly spread to the United States by the 1920s. Now my great grandfather was born in the 1920s. He died a few years back. And so, I mean, this is still like here, right? Eugenics was based on two parallel principles. The encouragement of birth among people who were considered good genetic stock and the sterilization of people deemed unfit for reproduction, including individuals with mental illness, those who were poor, and those accused of sexual promiscuity and sexual criminality. Now, if we think of just the image of Black people, the image of Black people during that time were poor. Some of them were misdiagnosed as having mental illnesses. Some of them may have seemed like they were sexually promiscuous and may have fallen into sexual criminality. So in this moment, it sounds like racism, right? The good stock can keep having babies, but sterilize the people who aren't good. Oh, look, look what it says next. Sterilization in the U.S. quickly focused on African-Americans. In California alone in the 1930s, that means my grandpa would have been 10 years old. African-Americans who comprised 1% of the population made up 4% of the victims of legal sterilization. That doesn't even make sense. 1% of the population, but they made up 4% of the victims of legal sterilization. Eventually, 18 states passed laws allowing for the widespread sterilization of the institutionalized, including many who were Black, misdiagnosed, and falsely accused of crimes. Although sterilization lost some of its appeal when it was discovered, Nazi Germany embraced the practice on a wide scale, by the 1970s, some states in the South, including notably North Carolina and Alabama, still sterilized disproportionate number of Black women who were declared by courts to be mentally defective. In North Carolina in the 1960s, for example, more than 85% of those legally sterilized were black women let me give y'all a story right so i'm so glad my mom did not <clears throat> go through with what the doctor suggested so my mom has bladder issues right before she had a she had to be in her 20s they were trying to sterilize her it during her childbearing years because she had something wrong with her bladder okay Now, she is just one of a lot of black women who doctors have encouraged them to basically get a hysterectomy or to like sterilize them so they're not able to have kids. I just thought that was bizarre. Like even in my mom's time, it says 1970s. My mom was born in 1971. Like what? African-Americans were also victimized by psychosurgery from the 1930s to 1960s, a process of surgically removing parts of the brain, lobotomy to treat mental illnesses. Started in Europe, it quickly gained acceptance in the U.S. for reasons that were finally ruled as socio-political rather than than medical by the late 1970s. Psychosurgery was promoted as treatment for brain dysfunction, a diagnosis claimed to have widespread to urban violence and inner-city uprisings. While most historians and social scientists viewed urban violence in the uprisings of the 1960s in a reaction to systemic oppression, poverty, discrimination, and state-sponsored physical violence, police brutality, Dr. Frank Irvin and a psychiatrist and two neurosurgeons, Drs. Vernon, Mark, and William Street argued into the 1960s that this violence was a result of a surgically treatable brain disorder and promoted their agenda as a specific contribution to ending the political unrest of the period. While never widely accepted and practiced, some lobotomies were performed on black children as young as five years old who exhibited aggressive or hyperactive behaviors. So when we talk about doctors and black people, doctors literally were taking parts of black boys and girls, parts of their brain, if they were aggressive or hyperactive. And think about how much we mislabel our black and brown students as aggressive and hyperactive. So this is even from the 1960s on. I'm gonna stop there because I need to get some water. Okay, I'm back. I'm back. So postpartum depression, a.k.a. baby blues, characterized by feelings of sadness, crying, and hormonal mood swings that happen after birth also can sometimes be severe and result in anxiety, depression, or rarely psychosis. The extreme form affects 20% of all races, but more than 40% of African American women who have been afflicted by it. The reasons vary, including lower economic status, emotional and financial distress, domestic violence, poor access to health care, single parenthood, and poor or inadequate child care, although rarely mentioned in the mainstream news. PPD is another manifestation of mental illness in African-American women. Sadly, the story of African American mental illness cannot be told without recognizing ever present socio political agendas and their particularly pernicious effects on black children. Extreme concentrated poverty, for example, continues to have an impact on availability of mental health treatment. In 1983, one in two black children lived in poverty compared to one in seven white children. Today, the ratio for black children is still one in three for white, and it is average of one in ten. Latinos have an average of one in four. Since we now know that the mental health of any child is intricately connected to the social, political, and economic policies and conditions of their immediate and extended environment, it is little wonder that we continue to see high suicide rates among Black children. Racism, systemic oppression, and discrimination police brutality, low economic, socioeconomic status, untreated parental psycho pathology and disruptive family dynamics all influence mental illness in children. With any quality of care, these numbers for black children will only continue to grow. If medical racism affected the mental treatment of African-Americans well into the 20th century. By the end of the century, medical practitioners were beginning to recognize the various socioeconomic factors that impact Black mental health. Yet cultural beliefs among uh, African-Americans also impact attitudes towards the treatment of mental health in Black communities. Miss, like it doesn't happen to us. We are strong and therefore do not get depressed, quote unquote, our God is able, quote unquote, it is not our portion, quote unquote, and we can pray it away, quote unquote, are not simply misleading beliefs that often create unnecessary barriers and stigmas to recognizing and treating mental illness among African-Americans. Though the African-American church has been a formidable force for the survival of blacks in a United States still grappling with the residual effects of white supremacy, one must not underestimate the mental toll that can result when on one hand, the church teaches forgiveness. And on the other hand, victims and their families have been called upon to repress justifiable feelings of anger and outrage in order to forgive. This becomes a particular challenge when no support infrastructure exists to acknowledge wrongdoing or set a proper stage for reconciliation and justification of the forgiveness. The crimes of oppression, terrorism, and racism continue against Black people even into the 21st century. These factors cannot be overlooked as underlying causes for the rising number of African-American suicides. Black women and men who commit suicide may seemingly prefer an afterlife better than the current tone with minimally attractive and viable options. While low socio and economic status can fuel the prevalence of mental illness, even amongst the more affluent African-Americans, stigma remains a strong deterrent to the acknowledgement and acceptance of its presence. Additionally, we are not often treated equally by medical practitioners, even when we do seek care and have the resources to pay for that care. I hope this article will initiate initiate the much needed conversation among and about Blacks on the need for the silence and stigma about mental illness to end. We must engage in the accurate narrative so we can gain access to appropriate funding and get on the proper path to healing ourselves, our children, and sustaining our future. That was a lot, y'all. I'm gonna let y'all eat on that, okay? Um, Overall, I liked it, I understand it. Um, I remember it took me months upon months to tell my dad I was back in counseling again. Because he made this comment and he said it was a joke. You probably heard of this too. So I went to like group therapy and he was like, oh, y'all just talking about y'all daddy issues. And that really like made me defensive. And I didn't want to tell him about my mental health journey. Um, but months, actually years later, let's be um, clear probably like months or years later, I told him how I had tried it again. And now I'm seeing a counselor every week and this stuff. So I mean, the truth will set you free guys, if you think that you have like something going on mentally, just like you would go to a doctor if you broke your arm, if you feel your mind is broken, or it can use some help, you know, just go to a counselor go to a psychologist check online um it's worth it you know like sometimes i get mad at the cost but a lot of times they will work with you so just reach out and like i feel like church should also promote mental health getting help right because all people in the church are not qualified psychologists You need someone who understands how your brain works and understands how to get you to the healing that you need, because it's all about being healed, being unapologetically you. And I will say, I would not have realized the amount of power I have in myself, the amount of drive I have in myself. Until I let out my pain and let out what I was going through for years with my counselor. So I encourage people in the Black community to find you a counselor and try it out. If you want a Black counselor, we got some Black counselors. If you want a Black male counselor, we got those too. Like, it's everywhere. I'm not a counselor, but I am definitely for mental health, okay? Um, Talk to y'all later. Bye.